it's important to me to to connect with girls um, and women almost as an example of you know this is possible you know if I hadn't created this this idea in my head I may not be here um, but this you know people like me are real and and you can actually you can be whatever it is you want to be right From Fiori Communications, it's How I Got Here, a show of inspiring stories from Tallahassee area leaders, business owners, and neighbors, all the challenges, opportunities, inspirations, the twists and turns of life that led them to where they are today. Everyone has a story worth telling, and I am really grateful that we get to bring a few of them to you. I truly have been changed by my conversations with these amazing people, and I'm confident you will be too. I'm Dave Fiore, and in this episode, I speak with Sharon James, government affairs consultant of counsel at the Gunster Law Firm. Sharon is a tireless advocate for women and girls, specifically working to provide opportunities and bridging gaps of inequity. As a child, she saw firsthand the difference education can make growing up in two worlds, one stable middle-class home and an emotionally supportive but financially vulnerable home. This duality stirred a passion and empathy for the community that has driven her professional and volunteer life as an adult. Sharon was on her high school homecoming court and was prom queen, but not by being the most popular kid in school. She said it was her first experience with political strategy as she built strong alliances among different groups. Sharon says those same strategies still work for her today. She is an attorney, worked for three Florida CFOs, and spent over three years protecting Floridians as our insurance consumer advocate. And in 2020, she created the Impact Companies in its first project, Impact Foods, which is now serving locally sourced fresh foods around town from high-tech vending machines to those who may lack access to healthy food. Sharon is also a community volunteer and has held significant leadership positions with the Greater Tallahassee Chamber of Commerce. A mom who loves to travel and support family football, Sharon says everything she does is to provide opportunities for her daughter. We started talking about her early years, splitting time between Pensacola and Orlando. So I was going back and forth, but not not like, you know, how families do it now with, you know, two weeks on and two weeks off Um, because of the distance. I would spend every summer uh, and every, you know, Christmas holiday and every other holiday. You know, it was kind of like that, the old school 80s divorce schedule. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. So I guess Orlando's not the worst place to be in the summers and holidays, No, right? or- Orlando was great. And yeah. my childhood, it really, in a lot of ways, um, shaped how I am and who I am um, because of that arrangement. So my mom, as I mentioned, was from, is from, was from Pensacola. She's passed on now. Okay. And my dad was from Orlando. Um, my parents met. My dad um, attended FAMU and was a teacher, and his first teaching job was in Pensacola, which is where he met my mom. So they married, they moved to Orlando, um, they were married for a number of years, and then they divorced. And so um, in the summers, I spent uh, the summers with my dad, who was by that time a principal uh, in Orange County. And what I saw um, with him was much different than what my, you know, 10-month upbringing was like in Pensacola. My mom didn't go to college, uh, high school diploma. She had a number of different jobs. And so it really, uh, in a lot of ways, shaped my, what I consider my duality and my, you know, my passion and empathy for community. Um, because I, I was able to see really and live between two worlds, uh, a very stable middle class family uh, in Orlando and uh, a stable but not um, emotionally and mentally stable, but not financially stable mm-hmm. upbringing uh, in Pensacola. Did you see education as being the difference in those two lifestyles? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and it was apparent not just from 
um, the my parents, but also my grandparents were very uh, much a part of my upbringing um, as a child. And my grandmother was, for most of my mom's um, upbringing, a stay-at-home mom. My grandfather was a contractor. When my mom and her sister got older, my grandmother began um, doing what they called day's work. Um, uh, it essentially was a housekeeper okay. for uh, a family, a physician. And so I, my idea uh, or my reality of summer camp was um, spending time with my grandmother at um, the home of this this physician's family. Hmm. And so again, that was just, um, for me, very a very clear indication of what uh, education um, can do and the difference that it makes in 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 your life right we'll get into it in, in a little bit but you got a lot of education <laughs> <laughs> I do you do yeah we'll, we'll get into these, those details so I did dig around a little bit and I found out that you were on the homecoming court at Pensacola High School. I was. Right. I was. What year of school was that? Um, that was 1992. Um, I graduated from high school in 1993. So So you were junior year? Um, my senior? senior year, okay. I believe. Were you somebody who enjoyed that kind of social, were you kind of a social butterfly kind of person? I was not. Um, and so what's funny, and, and the reason why I kind of hesitate on the year is because I was on the homecoming court, but I also, and I, so I was just on the court, didn't win. Mm-hmm. Um, but that same year, I believe, I know my senior year in high school, I did win prom queen. Oh, wow. Congratulations. <laughs> so, I know, there right? <laughs> so um, that wasn't, no, I, I was. So if you weren't super socially connected, what do you contribute or what do you attribute that to? So I, it, this is, that's a great question because I kind of um, talked with my daughter about this recently. To me, for me, it, in retrospect, I think it was the early days of political strategy because, and I'll explain what okay. I mean by that. So I was um, in the IB program. Um, and so when people hear that now, they probably didn't know that IB had been around, has been around say, for I that long. I had no idea, yeah. <laughs> yes. So I was in the um, IB program at Pensacola High School. Um, and Pensacola High School's IB program, I think, um, is very much like the IB program here, where it was a part of the the decision to place it at Pensacola High School was to add some degree of diversity to um, a school that would otherwise not be as diverse. Okay, so you weren't zoned for Pensacola High School. I was not zoned for Pensacola High School. Okay. Um, and m- most of um, the, well, I would say 99% of the um, kids that were in the IB program weren't zoned for for Pensacola High School. But Pensacola High School was, pro- I'm pretty sure Pensacola High School was a predominantly black high school. Okay. And so when I t- mentioned the political strategy, what made me somewhat unique was that um, I had a lot of friends in the IB program who were white, but I also had um you know, the support and the friendship of the majority students who were black. Okay. So when you add that, support, you know, that's those a good two, formula, that's right? That's a good formula to, <laughs> to become uh, uh, on the, to get on the homecoming court and right. become the prom queen. So well, there you go. It, it worked for me. Um, <laughs> but I didn't, I, I never, you know, set out for that. It really kind of was always a part of my leadership. So I was um, always a part of student government and was a student leader, not a social butterfly. Very okay. much like how I am now. Right, right. <laughs> so what what started your interest in leadership at the high school level? It all goes back to, I think, the foundation in the IB program. One of the things that I've realized, you know, recently, which is I think I have um, somewhat of a unique gift in terms of being able to see like trends and gaps and um, patterns. Okay. And so I always focus, I've always focused in on even then inequities and Mm. um, just contrast. And so as a student in the IB program, those inequities and the contrast and and even when I talk about, you know, my own upbringing. I was going to say that kind of mirrors that, right? Yes, it was, it was 
I always it was always kind of at the forefront of my my mind. And so as a student at Pensacola High School, those inequities were really clear. And so I just felt the need to kind of be a leader and bring um, shed a light on the inequities and also advocate um, for you know, changes and solutions and things that needed to happen um, in order for it to be better. Right. Do you think you had some success in high school doing that? Yeah, actually, I think so. Um, An example is, um, and again, this was probably 10th grade or 11th grade. Again, the program is the International Baccalaureate Program. And, um, you know, going through all these very rigorous courses, and I, I felt like we were, the students were not being exposed to black history and African-American authors. And so I went to the program administration and, you know, told them about that, talked to them about it, you know, and ultimately they put a library um, together in our student lounge um, of, it was probably about 25 to 30 books. And they let me pick which ones um, that they ordered. I think I had some success with that. I even had um, a classmate of mine reach out to me last year after the murder of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. Uh, A white classmate um, emailed me um, to thank me for how I responded to her, what she personally, I think, deemed um, in retrospect as racism. Um, she made a statement um, or asked a question in class, and, and I had no recollection of this. Was, this was all in the email that she sent me <laughs> right. um, of basically saying, you know, if you all don't like it, just go back to Africa. Um, mm. And apparently That's pretty I, straightforward. It was very straightforward. And right. apparently I responded to her in a way that helped her understand why that was racist and inappropriate. Mm. Um, and she again, it must have had an impact on her so much so that she remembered it and felt the need to say that, you know, since that time she understands and why she, um, why I responded to her that way and that it was a product of her own upbringing, that mm-hmm. she was mirroring and parroting what she had heard um, and and apologized for it. So to me, that, that was very... Um, impactful to me to have someone uh, many years later come back to me to say that um, something that I said to them was impactful. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, so after high school, you did start your path toward many degrees. (laughs) So you first earned a bachelor's degree in economics from Florida A&M University, then a master of public administration from Syracuse, then your law degree from University of Florida, yes. and then plus you earned an advanced cert- um, advanced certification from Stanford. Yes. So um, as we said, that is those are a lot of degrees, <laughs> and um, you know you had you've talked about seeing the importance and the value of education, yes. what a difference that can make in your life. I do, I'm just curious because that is more than just going to college and getting a degree. That's you know you're really setting yourself up for a lot of options professionally. So I wondered, was that, did you have a education and career goal from the beginning or did it just sort of evolve over time? Um, so it, it evolved somewhat over time. So when I started at FAMU, my initial goal um, was to, and this is in my like senior memory book, I wanted to be an international corporate lawyer. Interestingly, when I was growing up, I never knew a lawyer. I just never met one or interacted with one. It was just, I think, um, as I mentioned before, in my mind, that was a career goal um, or a career that would be, um, you know, kind of transformative. It would be... Why did you think that? Because I think from my reading and my you know, watching of TV, um, lawyers always seem to be, they always had some kind of impact and their standing in the community was 
was always really solid and they were respected. And so I think from a value standpoint, they were lawyers represented what I value. And so, mm-hmm. I, you know, and and frankly, I, I'm not good at math or science. <laughs> <laughs> Neither am I. That did cut down my um, career options. Somewhat. Yes, yeah. yes. Although my dad wanted me to be a pharmacist, um, that does require some math yes, and science. Yes. yes, so much so that when we went to orientation uh, at FAMU, they had each school and college. If you were going to, you know, this school or college, stand up and go with, you know, the person, the host, and um, they called the FAMU um, School of Pharmacy. And I was still sitting down, and my dad looked at me. <laughs> <laughs> like, what are you doing? Yeah. Well, does, they do have a great pharmacy they school. They do there. have a great pharmacy but, school. But um, so economics, economics. I mean, there's there are numbers involved in economics. Yes, but yes. But not equations so it, much, I guess, right? Right. And and that wasn't a direct, you know, path. So I wanted to go into international corporate law. Um, I thought I was going to. Uh, double major in business and French. Dropped French after, you know, a semester or two and found economics um, because it really, I think, in, it, it, I wasn't really familiar with the, the subject area, but after taking an economics course, I realized that it was more of a higher level understanding of, of you know, business and the economy. And so right. that's where I landed. So then I was kind of uh, mentored uh, by a professor at FAMU that was really advocating for me to get a PhD. You know, kind of went back and forth with that, which is why I ended up in a master's program because um, after graduating from FAMU, and I I, I kind of zoomed through FAMU. I went, um, I graduated from FAMU in three years. Wow. Yeah. And so I decided to take some time off, figure out what I wanted to do, and a master's program would give me an opportunity to decide, you know, law or a graduate or a PhD. Okay. And then I realized that it wasn't there wasn't one thing that I wanted to be an expert at and teach or study or research for the rest of my life. That just sounded awful to me. (laughs) (laughs) Needed a little more variety. There were a lot of things I was interested in, but nothing to dedicate my whole life to. Um, And so then I pivoted back to to law school. And and a part of that, too, was just that I wasn't ready to go to work. I I mean, go to law. I mean, go. And I still tell um, people that students, if you're not ready, you don't know exactly what it is you want to do. Stay in school. Yeah. And so, um, when I finished my graduate degree, I applied to one law school, um, and that was the University of Florida. And thankfully, um, I was blessed to get in, and the rest is history. Right. So your first job after law school was hanging out your own shingle, right? My first job after law school was teaching at FAMU. And to supplement my income, I hung my own shingle. Gotcha. So you, <laughs> yeah. were, an, you were an adjunct professor? I was, yes. And what, you were teaching law? I was teaching um, in the public administration um, political science track. But then you decided to join a local firm at some point after that? Yes. During that time, the real estate market was booming. And um, so the practice that I had developed over um, a couple years, and I was also doing um, some real estate investing on my own. And so the practice that was really growing for me was um, real estate law. And I started doing real estate um, closings and um, clearing title and, you know, transactional work. And um, that, like I said, that practice really developed and grew. And so I took that practice that I had uh, and joined a local firm, um, Messer Caparello. Right. Yeah. And how was that? That was great. So that was really my um, first experience in kind of law firm life. Um, And I worked with some great lawyers, great attorneys, at Messer Caparello um, and self. And I, I was there for probably about five years. But in the towards the end of my time there, there was that's when the bubble burst. Mm. And my practice shifted from a transactional real estate practice to more of a litigation adversarial practice, 
which didn't really fit with um, what I was interested in. Um, I never really liked the adversarial trial type of law. And so right. um, I began, you know, trying to regroup and figure out what I wanted to do. Um, and it was also during that time that I had my daughter, who uh, is now 13. And so I decided to leave private practice and go into state government. Okay. Yeah, and you joined the, uh, or you became the insurance consumer advocate for the state of Florida, right? Eventually. Okay, so there was something before that? There was something before that. So um, I joined the Department of Financial Services um, and worked for then-CFO Alex Sink. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I joined, I joined as the assistant director of a very uh, a little-known division, the Division of Rehabilitation and Liquidation, which um, oversees the takeover of insurance companies that become financially impaired or insolvent. I started there um, and eventually became the director of that division. CFO Jeff Atwater was elected. Um, and shortly after that, he appointed me to insurance consumer advocate. Okay. So what is that job? I didn't know that job existed. What did you do? So as insurance consumer advocate, the simplest way to explain it is that I am the lawyer and I was a lawyer and lobbyist for insurance consumers. So any um, insurance-related matter that um, came before the Office of Insurance Regulation or the legislature or the CFO's office, I was able to intervene on behalf of the public to uh, either support or, you know, weigh in on rate increases. Uh, So um, I did that. Or um, legislation, I was actively involved in advancing pro-consumer, pro-insurance consumer legislation. So you weren't helping individual people, but you were representing consumers and people as a whole. Absolutely. Like who's standing up for Floridians if the insurance company wants, or in the insurance industry wants to do this or that. Exactly. Exactly. And it was, um, it was across all lines of insurance. So property and casualty, health, workers comp, long-term care. Um, So it was a pretty vast uh, industry and a lot of issues that came up. Right. And one of the first things I did was I really wanted to hear from stakeholders. And so I I spent several months basically traveling the state to hear from seniors and um, folks that lived in South Florida, people that owned property uh, along the coast, um, military families, mm-hmm. just a wide variety, yeah. which um, interestingly is how I landed on uh, in finding an organization that I'm very um, much a part of now, which is the National African American Insurance Association. Right. You're um, the president now, right? The president of the Florida chapter. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so when I started this process of identifying stakeholders to talk with and as a part of what I consider the advocacy process, you always want to be able to have um, input from the people that are actually affected. And so I started searching for, um, you know, African-Americans in insurance, if there were any groups that I could go and talk with, again, to kind of build this this army or this um, group of stakeholders that could help push our um, pro-consumer issues. Are you talking about agents? I mean, people who work in insurance? So that's a great question, because what I found was the National African-American Insurance Association um, is an association of all African Americans in the industry. So agents, adjusters, you know, C-suite folks um, it, uh, across the board. And so what I also found was that there wasn't a chapter in Florida. The organization didn't have a presence. And so we found it a chapter um, in Florida now, I think, about four years ago. Okay. Has the response been good? Have, yeah. have people been interested in being part of that organization? The response has been great. Okay. Um, and it, it it is a statewide chapter. So we have folks um, in North Florida, Central Florida, and South Florida. And um, our membership base 
again, runs across various types of professions in the industry. Again, um, through my work, what was apparent to me was an inequity, Mm. lack of diversity in the insurance industry as a whole. As insurance consumer advocate, I had the opportunity to meet with, you know, company owners, officers, you know, vice presidents and presidents, and I didn't meet anyone that looked like me. Mm. And so that, again, was apparent and um, was something that... your skin color or your your gender? Both, both both skin color and gender. Okay. Uh, And to me, that was a problem and, and is something that needs to be addressed. Right. Then your next career move was to leave the the state and go back into private practice. Yes. Right? And you now are an of-counsel shareholder with the Gunster Law Firm. I am. Okay. So what does the of-counsel part mean? Does that mean you're not full-time or you're like a consultant or what does that mean? Um, That means that I practice law, um, but I'm also a government affairs consultant. Um, so I practice law and I'm a lobbyist. So my time okay. with Gunster is split between uh, government affairs and lobbying um, and the traditional practice of law. So you you wear two hats. You're a registered lobbyist and you're an attorney. Yes. Okay. Yes. And so the of counsel part kind of signifies the, the lawyer the legal, the traditional legal work that I do, okay, um, which is more on the regulatory side. So I basically um, represent businesses before state agencies. So um, licensing or getting applications approved through you know various agencies like the Department of Business and Professional Regulations or the Office of Insurance Regulation. Okay, did that seem like a natural next step for you in your career to to do this? Yes, especially because I, I, I wanted to stay in Tallahassee, mm-hmm. and so um, given um, all of my um, experience and, um, of course, <laughs> education, the to me it was just a natural, um, a natural shift in my work um, as a from a former regulator to representing, um, yeah. you know, businesses and. Because one job is just not enough to do at a, at a time. In May of 2020, you also, in the height of the pandemic shutdown, I'll add, that um, you launched the Impact Companies. Yes. Right? And yes. the first project under that umbrella is Impact Foods. Yes. So how did that happen and what is the company all about? So Impact Foods um, is a, well, the Impact Companies as a whole is a mission-driven social impact organization. Um, It is, I've had a long-term interest in um, social impact investing and entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. So as a a thread that um, runs parallel to everything else that we've talked about, I consider myself somewhat of a serial entrepreneur. I've had um, a couple different small businesses and have been involved in various types of investments. And so I wanted to to create and develop an organization, a company that could be impactful in Tallahassee to address some of the social challenges that we were that we are facing. Mm-hmm. And so I done some research actually for a couple of years looking at various projects to jump into. Um, I looked at, you know, uh, the need for a quality daycare in South City. I looked at, um, you know, health care. I looked at a number of different projects. And so during the pandemic, right before the pandemic, there was a lot of discussion in Tallahassee about food deserts and food insecurity. Right. Um, and so I started doing some research and my will started turning and, and essentially asking the question, this is what I do in my spare time. Um, you know, how, yeah, you have so much spare time. Yeah, right? yeah. How, how can we um, address food insecurity? You know, there was a lot of discussion about uh, traditional grocery stores not um, wanting or being able to be in certain communities for a number of reasons of which I understood. And so I started doing research on this topic, and that's when Big Brother kicked in. Um, I was online doing research and flipped over to Instagram and started, you know, scrolling through Instagram, and there was an ad, a sponsored ad from uh, a company called Byte Technology. Okay. Uh, and Byte Technology uh, manufactures swipe-grab-and-go kiosks. 
And that was my introduction to um, the technology behind uh, these kiosks. And from there, I developed Impact Foods. So okay. Impact Foods owns and operates um, swipe, grab, and go kiosks. You essentially swipe your credit card to open the door. You're able to access um, the food that's on the inside of the machine. And we offer um, healthier, fresh food options um, in our kiosks. Okay. We, we now have um, nine kiosks that are operating um, across the city. And the long-term mission uh, and goal... I'm sorry, let's go back. So <laughs> where are they located? I know there's one at the TCC Center yes. downtown because I've actually seen that one. Yes. Um, I was speaking to a Flagler class that Matt Thompson does on yes. podcasting. Yes. And we were waiting for that class to start. And, and saw I, saw, I saw it and so I saw somebody go through the process and mm-hmm. grab some food. I'm like, what are they doing? That is <laughs> yeah. really cool. But I don't, I didn't really understand what was going on. So, yes. Yeah. So um, we have four locations in downtown um, Tallahassee, the TCC Center for Innovation, uh, the Plaza Tower condominiums, okay. Tallahassee Center condominiums, and uh, the residential community, the new residential community in Millstream at Cascades Park. We also have two um, that are a part of Tallahassee Memorial Hospital, one at um, the TMH Bixler Emergency Room, mm-hmm. and one at their um, Northeast Medical oh, the Emergency Emergency Room. room. Yeah. Uh, we have one at Leon County Schools Admin Building. And one at Barrington Park Condominiums off Thomasville Road. And where does the food come from? So our we have we source all of our food, our ready to eat food locally. And so I say that because um, Impact Foods, there are two general kind of um, concepts. One is a smart cafe, which is ready to eat foods like salads, wraps, sandwiches. Um, and then there are micro groceries, which uh, we're working to stand up now, which is the machine w- is stocked with fresh food, staple food items like milk, cheese, butter, okay. et cetera. Uh, but our Swipe Grab and Go uh, Smart Cafe uh, is sourced pretty much all locally. Social Kitchen is one of our primary vendors, Red Eye Coffee, Tally Kombucha, Flex Foods. And so we work with local companies to to fill the machine with, yeah, with great food. That's great. Did you have to figure out the logistics of all of it and how they get refilled and how you know and just the whole business model part of it? Yes. But one of the things that really struck me about bike technology is that they, that particular company had 500 of the kiosks uh, operating in the state of California. And um, they sold off their owner-operator side and now are only distributing the machines. But mm-hmm. they, they, pro- they provide and have provided uh, a lot of insight in building the business model. Okay. Um, and so that's been very helpful. So but you didn't have to invent it, but you had to, to implement it. Didn't have to invent it, right. but definitely had to uh, implement it and make it work for here, here and also for me given the fact that I, I have quite a few other things going on. Yeah. <laughs> it had to be something manageable time-wise, yes, right? absolutely. So do you have someone who helps you with that, or is it are you doing it all on your, on no, your own? No, so I have a, a great team of people who we all work probably – Ha- about quarter time. So between the between all of us, we make up one full person. <laughs> okay. And and one of the things that um, I love about the work is, and there go that the name impact is that we are able to have an impact in in many areas. So and being able to be a distribution source for local restaurants. Um, that's been great to be able to provide healthier food options and fresh food in places that um, don't have it is great. But also, we donate all of our food, uneaten food, to local families. So mm-hmm. we um, restock our machine every three days. And so anything that we have to pull on that third day, we donate. And so that's also been a great um, point. Of, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, of impact. Good. Yeah, that's great. Hey, everybody. Just a quick reminder that this episode is brought to you by Fiori Communications. Just like people, every business has a story to tell. 
And we've been helping our clients tell their story since 2001. Because who you are as a company is just as important as what you do. To learn more about how telling your story can make a difference in your business, visit FioriCommunications.com. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Okay, shifting gears a little bit. In um, other ways, you're involved in the community. First, let's just start with the chamber, because that's like a yes. whole category into itself, probably. So you were a member of Leadership Tallahassee Class 21. Yes. You can go ahead and say it now the if you want to. The best class ever. There you go. <laughs> and you're the immediate past chair of LT. Yes. And you're also the chair of the Community and Prosperity Committee. Yes, for right? the chamber. Right, for the chamber. So um, why is involvement in the chamber important to you, and how does it help you and your goals to impact the community? Um, so my introduction to the chamber was, you know, as you have said, was through Leadership Tallahassee. Um, I am a Leadership Tallahassee fanatic, and um, I went through the program, I think we're on class 38 or 39, yeah, I and I went through in 21. So right. so it's been a long it's time. It's like halfway. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Right. Um and so I learned a lot about Tallahassee through the, the program and built relationships, which is not uncommon. But I was also the business community um, was an area that I wasn't involved in. You know, government and not-for-profit is an area I've been involved in for a long time. Mm-hmm. So for me, being a part of the chamber kind of goes back to a, a theme I've mentioned before, and that is kind of being that person in the middle, that voice um, representing interests at the table that um, aren't always there. Right. So tell me about the the Community and Prosperity Committee as part of the chamber. What is your goal and what, what does the committee do? So the Community and Prosperity Committee is a brand new committee of the chamber, and it really has been in development for a number of years. Um, the commit the committee is really focused on helping to bring forth um, solutions to challenges that impact our community um, through the business community and kind of shining a light on those challenges and providing um, business owners and chamber members with opportunities to to be a part of the solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are we've spent the last several months really talking with stakeholders about the root causes of poverty and how we as a business community can help um, change those root causes. It's also you know really apparent. Uh, from an economic development standpoint, that companies want to come to a community that um, have certain things, um, a great educational system, you know, low crime, arts, affordable housing. And so all of those things impact our ability as a community to have um, a strong economy and jobs. And so our committee is really charged at taking a look at those things and and w- and making it a part of the everyday conversation of the chamber, which is relatively new. Right. So you're involved in many other organizations in the community, many of which focus on women. And those include the Pace Center for Girls, Refuge House, and the Oasis Center for Women and Girls. Um, why is this such a focus for you and your volunteer time? So, again, it kind of goes back. You do a great job of um, leading uh, one through uh, how they got here. Well, so it kind of goes back. <laughs> it goes back well, to not everybody has such a clean thread as you, though. You've been very consistent <laughs> through your life in this, which makes it easy. So, um, you know, I mentioned early on the uh, inequities that I saw and that inequities that I experienced. And so right. one of the patterns dealt with the fact that I was a woman. And so there were times when I felt opportunities were impacted because of that. Um, And so for me, it really is about making sure that women and girls have equal opportunity to be the best that they can be and to to thrive. And so if a community isn't offering that or an organization isn't offering that or a person is making it difficult for a woman to do that, then I'm 
I'm there. Mm. And and I want to make sure that I lend my voice to that and advocate for women and girls as a whole, but it, women individually. You know, I think um, it's important to, a lot of times people, you can sit on a board and you can serve and you can, you know, go to a fundraiser and you can write a check. But ultimately, I think um, change happens one person at a time. Mm. And so for me, it's important to not just give back, you know, at a high level, but to give back to individuals. Mm. And I, I do that um, personally, but also through my work in organizations like those. Right. And that's probably especially true when girls, some of the organizations, you know, you work with girls have had to overcome some challenging circumstances. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so helping them overcome those circumstances. And then also um, going back to the fact that in a lot of some of their circumstances mirror what I experienced uh, in, you know, my Pensacola life. And when I look back and realize an example that I'd never met a lawyer, mm. let alone a black female lawyer, although I that's what I knew I wanted to do and be. I, it's important to me to to connect with girls um, and women almost as an example of, you know, this is possible. You know, right. if I hadn't created this this idea in my head, I may not be here. Um, but th- this, you know, people like me are real and mm-hmm. and you can actually you can be whatever it is you want to be. Right. OK, so we've talked about, you know, women and girls. So mm-hmm. I want to talk a minute about the girl who's most important to you, yes. your your daughter, <laughs> who's 13 now, right? Yes. So uh, tell us about her. So, yeah, my daughter is most important to me. She's the most important girl in my life. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my daughter, Chase, uh, is 13. She is uh, going to the ninth grade uh, at Lincoln. It's been a... That's a big change year that's for a, her, right? It's a huge change yeah. year for her. Um, it's the two of us, and we have a, a dog, Bella, who is a mix between a Dotson uh, and a Chihuahua. Um, so she's very uh, energetic and outspoken. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah, my daughter and I are are, are really close, and, and most of, actually everything that I do, I do for her because I want to make sure, again, that she has opportunities that I didn't, and a lot of the decisions that I've made in raising her um, relate to that. Do you talk about you, the way your circumstances when you grew up, and and how that impacted you, and now how that impacts her through you? I do, I do. Um, I'm not sure she necessarily gets it, but I think um, that's natural because I have, you know, I talk with her about it. She sees it. Um, and it's important to me, and I, I think she may be she may get it more now as she matures. But it's been important to me to expose her to all facets of life mm-hmm. and different lives, so she she could get it and she can right. get it. But she's she's naturally very empathetic, um, which I think helps her understand the the need to. Um, give back and give and also appreciate the life that um, she's been given. Right. I I just heard a podcast the other day from an athlete talking about how difficult it is to communicate to their, he can't, he was talking about he can't recreate the struggles he went through for his kids. And now they live a life of much more privilege than he did. So it's the challenge of Making them understand that, making the children understand yes. that, which is hard. Yes, yeah. and 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 making them or somehow creating an environment. Um, I'm a big um, fan of the book Grit um, and the whole concept of um, having grit and that being a determinant or a major determinant in one's success. Mm-hmm. And so, just balancing um, opportunity with privilege and grit. And you know what comes, what comes out of that. But kids aren't a formula, so you just <laughs> no, you, you can have it all figured <laughs> out and do nothing. Absolutely. Right? You've been named to the twenty-five women you need to know by the Tallahassee Democrat, and you've also been the recipient recipient of numerous awards, including the Pace Setter Distinguished Leadership Award from the Tallahassee Chamber. 
So what do these kinds of recognitions and awards mean to you? So I um, I, I appreciate the recognition um, and but I, I hesitate only from the perspective of the fact that what motivates me is the work. Mm-hmm. And so um, I appreciate being recognized. To me, it, it goes back to, um, you know, me wanting to inspire other women and girls and people of color. Um, and for me, it's not about me personally. Right. Um, what's funny, though, is... This is a funny story it, that just happened either yesterday or the day before yesterday, um, and this makes all this puts it in the into reality. Um, I was with my daughter and we were um, at a store. She saw a dress that she liked, um, tried the dress on. It was a nice dress. It fit, and she said, um, um, "I don't want it because I don't have any place to wear it." And I said, well, you can, you know, have a dress and wait. And she was like, oh, okay, well, I'll wear it the next time you get an award. <laughs> so, and, I, and I said, well, that's, you don't know if that's going to happen. You may never get a chance to wear the dress. And she was like, no, I'm sure I'll get a chance to wear it. Yeah, she'll probably get to wear it at some point soon. <laughs> so that's, that's the reality, but I don't know. Well, I did read in an article from The Democrat in 2015 Um that you said your advice that you would give someone would be to plan your life the best you can, but be flexible. And do you think you've taken your advice on that? And how has that worked out for you? Yeah, I have. I'm very much a planner. um, But I do recognize that you, you really can only plan so much. Um, I am um, also a woman of faith. And so because of that, I, what's most important to me is, um, that everything that I do be in uh, the will of God. And so mm-hmm. that may be what I have planned or what I may write down or what I may think may be different. And so that's a part of, um, in in some ways, that's a part of the need for flexibility. And so I, I have been flexible. Um, an example is there have been times, especially earlier, early in my career, that I tried to leave Tallahassee, that, you know, when I think back to wanting to be an international corporate attorney or, you know, spending time in um, New York or um, having an interest in federal policy issues, Tallahassee wasn't the place for that. Um, But every time um, there was something about Tallahassee, either uh, a professional opportunity, a business opportunity, or family opportunity that kept me here. And so... Yeah. Um, I love Tallahassee now and, and don't want to be anywhere else. Right. <laughs> Is there anything that you enjoy or any hobby you have or something you do that would surprise people? Um, probably not. What I enjoy um, most is uh, sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love to sleep. You mean like you would sleep until noon if you could? No, I, so I'm an early riser, but I I would I could go to sleep at eight thirty nine o'clock if if I could, yeah. and I and I love to travel. Um, we just got back from L.A. Um, mm. on vacation. That was my first time there, and it was definitely um, it was eye opening. Great vacation, had a great time, but um, very eye opening. Yeah, yeah. It's a completely different, completely world. different world. Yeah, yeah. And of course, for me. What struck me more than anything was the degree of uh, poverty and homelessness mm. was, um, it was overwhelming. Were you actually in the city? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's because I'm I'm not a good um, travel planner of all the things that I plan. Yeah. And so we actually stayed downtown. I didn't realize that um, Skid Row and downtown L.A. were like, the you same. know, the same. Right. Um, yeah, well, you learn for your next trip out there, maybe stay outside the city just a little bit. I know. Or consult with somebody yes, where yes, a good place to yes, be might be. Or yes, go. But, but we did. Ha- we had a great time in Santa Monica and did the tours oh, and nice, all that yeah. stuff. So Good, good. <laughs> all right, last two questions. All right, so Sharon, looking back, is there one thing or person that you would say um, altered the trajectory of your life to this point? There have been a number of people, but um, I definitely have to say that Dr. Frederick Humphreys had a tremendous impact on 
the trajectory of my life because just, he just we, passed away right um because of his vision for florida a&m university and me going there during um his presidency and it really being a mecca of black talent at the time um really has impacted um and really impacted my trajectory trajectory Mm -hmm. and my ability to dream and do uh, and know that there is no there's no factor no you know as a woman of color as a black woman I can do and be anything because he showed us that Mm -hmm. uh, and gave us really the runway to to achieve and so I definitely would um say that he was extraordinarily impactful to mm. who I am. And you dealt with him directly because you served on the board. Yeah, so I I um, served with him and worked with him directly as um, the vice president of student government and also student member of the Florida Board of Regents okay. at the time. Okay, so I knew about the Board of Regents. We didn't talk about that you were <laughs> vice president of, of the yes. student government, too. yes. I had an opportunity to work really closely with right. him um, and and so many other great students that came through FAMU at the time, right. which reminds me, I know, again, this may not make it, but uh, FAMU football is something I'm crazy about. So okay. uh, aside from sleeping. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so changing conferences this year yes. right, in football, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. I'm excited about that. I'm excited about um, the schools that we'll be competing with now as a part of the SWAC. Um, I'm excited about being able to travel to games. I'm excited about Miami and Orlando and Tampa and Atlanta. Um, it's just a great time to be a Rattler. So yeah. that that excites me. Great. I'll make sure that part gets in. Oh, thank you. <laughs> sure. All right, this is the last question, and I appreciate all your time. This podcast is named How I Got Here, and we've talked about how you got to this point in your life. So where do you think here might be for you in three to five years from now? Three to five years from now, um, my daughter will be graduating from high school, and um, I really have not planned my life beyond that. Uh, I'm 100% focused on uh, making sure that she gets there and that she is able to begin that phase of her life with um, all of the opportunities that God has for her. So I don't know. We'll see. I'm excited about the future. I'm um, excited about Tallahassee, Impact Foods. Uh, I'm excited about Gunster. It's a great time, uh, especially coming out of uh, the year that we've just come out of. I'm, I'm grateful to, to be at this point. That was Sharon James. As she continues to fill gaps, provide access to the vulnerable, and serve our community, I'm sure it won't be too long before her daughter gets to wear that dress. Thanks for listening to the show. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Thanks to my amazing staff at Fiori Communications, who pick up the slack while I'm working on these podcasts, and to Troy Bloom for composing our theme music. You can hear more of Troy's creations on Facebook and Instagram at Troy Bloom Music. To connect with the podcast or suggest a future guest, follow us on social media or email us at podcast at fioricommunications.com.